welcome back to the Tell It Like It Is podcast, where leading female founders, industry trailblazers, and all-around badass women tell it like it really is. I'm your host, Cassandra Ray. Today's guest is founder and managing director of Character and Distinction, a leading Melbourne PR agency for technology-driven brands. She's a mentor for Startmate and for the University of Melbourne's Accelerator Program, and she's an advisor to a number of tech startups, including Ref Live, Matrack, and the for-profit social enterprise Park. As if that weren't enough, she is also the founder of Commissioned Editions, a premium design brand that works with emerging furniture and object designers to release limited edition pieces. As my close friend for over 10 years, I can also confirm that she is one of the smartest, kindest, and most badass women on the planet. Please join me in welcoming Kate Dinan. Hi, Kate. Thanks for joining. How are you? Hi. I love your podcast voice. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm now just going to be really nervous about my podcast voice the entire time. No, it's interview. fantastic. <laughs> I love um, the way so you how- step into any role and own it. It's the best. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So you are in Melbourne. How are things there? Or are you in Melbourne, actually? I am about 40, no, about 100, actually, kilometers outside of Melbourne in a sleepy seaside town where we're bunkering, bunkering down to uh, get through COVID-19. Yeah. So, I mean, why not start there, right? We, we can't avoid talking about coronavirus. So let's just jump in. We are recording this the first week in May. Most countries around the world are still under lockdown. Some, I believe, including Australia, have started to ease a little bit, but others like where I am here in the UK haven't quite yet. But I think most of us have a feeling that to some degree or another, we are approaching the end of this first acute phase where we were all just hunkering down, doing what we can to stay alive and, you know, importantly, to keep others alive. I feel like we're now all starting to peer out of our metaphorical curtain and assess the damage. So, you know, looking at really trying to figure out how bad this economic impact is going to be and how quickly, if at all, our businesses can bounce back. And I was particularly interested in talking to you about this because I feel that as somebody who worked in you know, years in HR before transitioning to public relations and now, of course, leading your own agency um, where you are responsible for your team, where the buck stops with you, I'm curious how you've approached leading your team in the midst of this crisis and if you feel your previous experience in HR has influenced you. Well, so how I approached it, um, well, so let's just maybe start with the impact, I guess, that it had on, um, on our clients and therefore on the business. So we work with usually anywhere between 12 and 15 clients, most of them technology brands or technology-driven companies, and, but, but across sectors, so automotive, travel, um, fintech, um, employee engagement. And so depending on the sector, you know, some of those businesses were hit really hard and it was immediate on day one. Um, others were hit really hard, but in a good way, as in, you know, they, uh, their demand increased like really significantly overnight. And so for us, it was a more, it was a bit of a situation of, in some ways, I think we saw what might be coming for our clients a little bit before they did because we are, we've been so connected into what's happening overseas. And so we were quite prepared as an agency maybe two weeks before lockdown and we um, we went to working from home about a week before you know, the rest of, well, the week before the government uh, mandated it. And so we kind of had a plan in terms of the clients that we thought might be the most impacted quickly. And we'd also started to think about, okay, what does, what does the world of public relations look like in a pandemic? Um, and, you know, what's the role that each of these clients, each of these brands can play for their customers? So really having to quickly rethink what is the value that we add if, if it is appropriate at all um, to be thinking about public relations at that time. And for some of them, it wasn't. So that then, of course, you know, each client was in a different situation. So we worked it through with each individual client, um, giving them 
the out if they felt like they needed to pause our services, um, but also proactively going to them with our thoughts on what could their brand do and be for people in this new environment and starting to have those proactive conversations. Um, and therefore, depending on the impact on the client, it had a different impact on the team. So our, our, our team members um, all work on their own clients. And so uh, it was a bit different for everyone, but obviously everyone for everyone there was uncertainty. Um, and so how I've led is just with a lot of honesty, really, uh, being quite transparent about not really knowing what's going to happen next, but that um, always being open about what their roles are and how sustainable, how much cash flow we've got and what I'm thinking in terms of what changes we might have to make. So being quite open and honest with the team about that. And we've been lucky that we haven't had to make any changes in the team at all yet. It doesn't mean it won't happen, but right now we're, we're definitely down some clients and a slightly reduced workload, but, you know, it could be so much worse. Mm. And apart from just, you know, it's radical honesty, which knowing you is, is how you operate anyway. Is there anything you've had to, to change or adapt to support your team specifically? I think I've had to, uh, I've had to probably think more about everyone on an individual basis and try and understand where they might be at personally, you know, what's happening in their broader life. So with their partners, with their families, you know, what's their working from home setup like? Is there anything they need? Is there anything we can help them with? You know, I can help them with. Um, so I've, I've probably taken a, I mean, we're a pretty small team. There's only five, um, six of us in total. So I've really just had to, I guess, manage it on a person by person basis. Um, but obviously in the working from home environment where we're all working from our homes along with our clients, We've put in place a lot of extra check-in points um, as well, you know, start of day, 15-minute Zooms and end of day, 15-minute Zooms and end of week. One of the um, amazing members of our team, Melia, had this great suggestion that on a Friday afternoon that we all share three things that we're grateful for in that week. And that's become such a lovely way to end the week which has only happened because of coronavirus, but it's something that we'll definitely keep in the team because mm. it's such a lovely way to close out your week and go into the weekend um, and just reconnects us all, I guess, with each other. And, and, you know, nine out of 10 things or probably 10 out of 10 things are not work-related. So it's a, good, it's a really good way just to connect again as friends because um, we're so task-driven during the day when we're, you know, just trying to get shit done. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're not the first person I've heard talk about bringing something like that into team meetings or into the professional sphere. Um, that's something in the, the three things you're grateful for. I do that with my son every night. Uh, and he's too young, I think, at this time to, to really understand it. But <laughs> I love that you try, though. That's great. I, try, yeah. I mean, I try it with my five-year-old and she can't quite so <laughs> no, but it's as much for me as for anything else because we all yeah, have those days where you know, you're com- yeah. yeah you're completely um you know stressed and tired and it's just a nice it's a nice moment but it reminds us that there might there's a place to bring that into other areas of our life as well absolutely yeah it's it's been great and it also gives me insight into what they value right now because I take signals from that you know if everyone's talking about the fact that what they're grateful for that week was that they got outside, then, okay, let's make sure that we're building in time next week or just being conscious of what everyone needs right now and trying to make the space for that where we can. Mm. And with this on your shoulders, you know, it's, it's enough, I think, for a lot of us, too much, in fact, to be thinking about the future of our own lives, of the lives of our children or our families, if we have them, um, you have the life of the business that you created, that you built from scratch, and the lives of five other people also depending on you. How are you personally managing with the pressure? I guess building up the business, I, I didn't build it by myself. You know, like um, I couldn't have built it without the people that 
the sort of work that we do, we're only as good as like everyone is, is so valuable in the team and there are no weak links in our team. Um, and they're all so committed and so good at what they do. So I've only been able to grow the business because, you know, we've got such amazing people that really care and that are just really good at their jobs. Um, and that means that they're all very independent and mature and uh, I guess they have an internal locus of control. So they're all quite well self-actualized and like just great people. And so I think that means that you can be really open with them when things aren't going as well. And I think that we all, they know I've got their back and I know that they've got my back and that that takes a lot of pressure off, if you know what I mean, because Mm. I don't feel like I'm, I feel like we're doing it together. So whilst ultimately, yes, of course, I'm the one who um, sees the, you know, sends the invoices every month and acutely feels it when we lose a client. Um, it's, it, it has felt more like a team effort in getting through this together as a team. And if we were going to have to reduce salaries, you know, I was going to reduce mine as well, of course. Um, so, you know, any impact on the team, I, I would have the same impact. Um, so yes, it definitely did feel, you know, the first few weeks were pretty like when we literally, I think we lost four clients in a week and I thought, okay, well, there were, we're we're going to, we're going to lose them all. We're going to have no clients. (laughs) I'm going to have no clients in another week or two weeks. Yeah. But it was actually more just the fact of those were the clients that really had to make really immediate changes. And they were also standing down or furloughing their teams. Um, and of course, agencies have to go before staff. Um, that's just a given. So I think it was more just, you know, that they all acted quickly and it wasn't in a sign of things to come, at least not for now. So it, it quickly stabilized and we actually then won a few new clients. So it sort of started to turn around a little bit. So it was only about two weeks where I was feeling quite a lot of pressure, but Um, I think also my husband having Alex to just really talk things through quite analytically with, and just quite matter of fact, like trying to separate the emotion and trying to make good decisions based on data instead of deciding things based on emotion in the moment. And so that meant, you know, really going through our costs and really going through and trying to forecast what other revenue I thought might go and when so that we at least knew at what stage um, would we have to make changes, you know. So, Mm. okay, if we lose another client or another X in revenue, that means we're going to have to make this change. And if we lose another, that means we're going to have to make this change. Um, And so just having a a path forward, Mm. I think, always helps me if I'm feeling stressed. As long as there's a plan, I'm all good. Yeah, we're not all fortunate enough to be married to a strategy consultant. Um, But I do think it's useful to have somebody who's really data-driven. And like you said, who can separate the emotion from the reason sometimes in these situations that are inherently very emotional to help you see the forest from the trees um, when you're in a moment of crisis. And my accountant too has just been amazing. He's really like, yeah, this is, I guess, where some of these advisors that you have around you in your business really show you their value. Uh, I mean, he's always been amazing, but he was particularly amazing through that period where we were trying to just do the analysis and understand what it all meant for the business and what government subsidies or programs we might be eligible for, etc. So it certainly helps to have built up a team of lovely, talented, competent people around you that actually care about you and your business. Mm. And so you mentioned that with you know, for some of your clients, PR just might not be relevant to them right now, might not be appropriate for them to be investing in this. Um, But for some, it is very relevant and appropriate. For those brands for whom it is relevant, how do you, how, how should they communicate through this? Well, I think first and foremost, um, try and be of help to your customers try and, you know, really understand where they're at, what role your brand or your service or your product plays in their life and what role it 
could play or should play right now? And sometimes that can be nothing. And that's the best answer. Um, like I don't want to give examples because I, um, but, um, or maybe like for, let's just say you're a gas provider or something, you know, like, yeah, great. You know, you should definitely think about your hardship programs and you should think about, um, yeah, vulnerable customers. Um, what can you do to maybe ease any charges related to disconnections or what, what have you, but you don't need to be creating TVC, TV commercials trying to drive acquisition. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just about, and I guess that's our role as an external advisor is to, to be that, to hold a mirror really um, and reflect back the community and their community and what they really need and want at this time from your brand, if anything at all. And mm. some, for some of our clients, our advice has been, let's not do that. You know, let's not try and push a new product or right now because it, it could be quite insensitive um, to try and sell something to people that don't know if they have a job. Are there any brands, I mean, not necessarily the ones um, you know, you're responsible for helping, although it'd be fine if it was, but are there any brands that you think are doing really well in communicating through this? There's a couple. We actually, as a team, have been gathering examples just in the shared Google Doc of all the brands that we think are just nailing it through this crisis. Um, trying to think if there are any international brands so that it's sort of a bit more... Well, this isn't an international brand, but it's, it's, um, it's an art gallery in Tasmania called, the, called Mona, Museum of Old and New Art, which was founded by this incredible eccentric entrepreneur um, who has a, I guess, made his fortunes, I think, in gambling, like being a very sophisticated poker player or something like that. He's also written a few books and he's, he's just this mad, eccentric, wonderful guy who built this museum in Tasmania, which is um, sort of a tiny island off, off the bottom of Australia. Um, and it has completely turned around the whole state. Like people visit Australia just to go to that museum. It's a, it's a big experience, uh, employs a lot of people, brings a lot of revenue to the state. Uh, and it's just wonderful because it's driven by him and his vision and what have you. And so it's always been a brand that I guess stands apart for that reason. But what they've done during this time was, you know, they wrote this, the founder, David Walsh, wrote this most incredible letter when they decided to close the museum, which was before the full lockdowns, just a really open, honest, um, yeah, just an open, honest story about what he had been through emotionally to, in the decision to, to close. But then they started doing these like great things, like they put live streams on some of their artworks and, sent EDMs with links to the live stream when things were live so that you could actually still participate and feel like you were at the museum. Uh, They made these great packs for, I guess, parents that are homeschooling their kids. So like really fun little packs that they sold through their shop of things to keep the kids entertained at home. So just things like that, that, you know, um, that either entertain or, or, give you a, like a moment of relief or humor or inspiration in your day or something or sell you something really useful. So I think they did a really good job of just reading the room. So I want to uh, switch gears a little bit. Um, I mentioned before that you had uh, several years experience working in HR um, internationally and uh, then moved to corporate comms before you launched your own, um, you know, series of agencies, actually. Um, what made you first make that move from HR to communications? Well, it wasn't intentional, really. Um, I was working in London, as you know, uh, at the time, living in London, and uh, I had moved over from Australia, from Melbourne to London with this employer and I kind of got to the point where they were going to move their headquarters from London to Switzerland to Zurich and I wasn't really into it. I didn't really want to go. I didn't want to make the move. And so I told my boss at the time, um, no, I think I want to go back to Australia. And he said, Kate, you're crazy 
take the head of, why don't you try the head of corporate communications role because the role's vacant. Um, just take the he, role, Kate, just take it. He's like, give it a go. He said, I think you'll be, him and the CEO at the time both said, we think you'd be really good at this job. And I honestly, this is not disparagement of the person that was in the role before me, but I honestly thought that all the comms team did was make posters and, uh, you know, write internal emails. I've had no appreciation of the breadth or the depth of the function. Um, probably says more about me than it does about anyone else. But so, but I thought, okay, how hard can it be? He said, look, if try it. And if after six months in, in Zurich, if you don't like it, I'll send you back to Australia with a redundancy. And so I was like, mm. well, how can I, how could I actually say no to that? It seems like I'd, I'd be pretty silly not to give it a go. And so I took the role and moved to Zurich and haven't looked back in either regard. I mean, obviously I've left Zurich now, but I met my now husband there. So that turned out to be a good decision for that reason. But also as soon as I got into the role, I I did really love it and saw that um, I think because it gives you so much more of an insight into the external world and the internal world of the company. So, um, and the sector I was in at the time, resources, really global sector, lots of impact from geopolitical issues. So it just was it just the better fit, I guess, for my natural uh, interests and my personality probably mm. than HR. So it's so interesting because, you know, you read all of these studies that show that um, women will look at a job description. I mean, this is, this is a gross generality, right? So there's always exceptions, just saying that as a caveat, I don't want to be beat up on Twitter, but um, that a lot of women will look at a job description and not apply for a role unless they meet 100% of the criteria or very near to 100%. Whereas, you know, men will, will by and large look at a job description and apply for a role if they're, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of, of the JD. Um, do you have a sense for where you drew that confidence to completely career pivot, not just, um, you know, into a different function, but as head of a function, you know, in a, in a new country, et cetera, um, to, to just the bravery to give that a try. I think probably it's just my nature to want to jump in and give something a try and not really see the barriers, only see the opportunities. But I think in that particular instance as well, I had quite a good safety net around me with that one. You know, I knew the whole executive team, I'd work with them for probably five years by then. Um, so I knew all my colleagues, I had their trust and respect already. I knew the business um, and I had the, a, a ticket home and a redundancy promise if I didn't like it. So that one was probably not such a hard decision to make for all those reasons. But I also do just think generally that I'm quite... I'm just the type of person who will just have a go. Mm. Um, and if it doesn't work out, I'll figure it out at the time. I mean, since that experience or potentially even for, there's obviously a lot of risk taking that comes with starting your own business and you know, leading your own business. Do you try to engineer that safety net around you before you take big risks now? That's a great question. I think that the safety net Yes, in a way, because I, I've, I've grown very carefully, very cautiously. So unlike a lot of agencies, um, we, well, maybe that's not a fair thing to say, but I've, I guess I've seen a lot of agencies that tend to win clients and then try and find staff to service the work. We take it the other way around. So if we want to grow, we hire someone, train them, um, and then we get the work. So I think that the only way to grow a business like this is through having really, well, a business that I want to lead and be part of is by bringing together a really talented team of mature, as I said, self-actualized people who have their own internal motivations um, and want to work together as a team. And so I haven't grown 
I guess what I'm saying is I haven't grown too quickly. You know, I've, I've made really careful growth decisions. I always keep a few months of salary in the bank, et cetera, et cetera. So I guess my safety net is just whilst we have one of our values, I guess, is nothing is above us and nothing is below us. So we will try absolutely anything. Um, and that's very much our mentality, but I'm not that way when it comes to financially managing the business. I'm quite prudent, which I think my husband finds quite amusing because I'm not that prudent <laughs> on the home spending side. <laughs> you know, you've mentioned a couple of times now, um, I, I sort of had it in my mind to get to this later, but I think, I think now's the time. You've mentioned a couple of times the, the value and importance of a team that you know, you've, you've mentioned the word self-actualized, works well as a team, or even the people you have around you, the, the accountants, et cetera, that you've brought in. I think hiring people, whether it's hiring support people, like people that support our business, like our accountants or our lawyers, or if you run your own business and you're hiring your own team, or if you just work in a business and you are charged with, with hiring a team, is one of the most difficult things to do well and is one of the areas that a lot of people really struggle to do well and make some big mistakes that are hard to reverse. Do you have any insight into how you have been able to so successfully build this incredible team around you in all these different areas? Yeah. So I haven't hired. I guess that's how. (laughs) I'm bad at recruitment. And I know this from my HR days because I just see the best in everybody and I just see their potential and I just want to help everyone. So um, I wasn't a very good recruiter. Um, But so with my business, I haven't ever had an open position that I've hired for. It's more been, I've been introduced to someone by a mutual friend or I, in one example, or both two examples, I had worked with the, per, the team member previously. Um, so they were all known to me or known through a trusted friend. Uh, and it's the same with our lawyer. It's the same with our accountant. Um, it, it's, I guess, which is great, but on the other hand, it doesn't say much for inclusion or diversity. And that's definitely something that we haven't done well enough um, because I've relied on on a network to find people to work with us. It means I'm definitely missing out on really talented people um, that are just outside of my network. And so I'm really conscious of that and something that we've talked about as a team as well is, well, we need to be better than that. And yet again, I mean, knowing you, I think it's amazing that you can be so open about an area that you would like to improve. And also knowing you, I know whether it's conscious or not, you actually have an incredibly diverse network. Um, And maybe it's, you know, I really um, heard very well the the value you just said for, for your team, which is nothing is below us and nothing is above us. And um, that's, I feel having known you kind of a way you live your life. And because of that, you, you really do have a really incredibly diverse network across countries, across, you know, all walks of life. I guess I have a, I have a varied and diverse network, but I, I think when it comes to, um, maybe people with disabilities or, um, migrants to Australia, I just don't feel like or maybe people that are just com- completely outside of the sector or um, people who haven't studied or haven't just come through those pathways. I just feel like everyone as organisations should try and just do a little bit better to be more inclusive and look a bit harder before mm. you fill roles. And so I'm just, it's just something that's on my mind as, as a way that our business can be better. Um, and it's very much one of our clients is a really amazing company called Culture Ant that um, is employee engagement and insights software used by about 3,000 companies around the world. And their CEO is just the most incredible inspirational leader. And 
I think he just, you know, a lot of what he says rubs off on me. And so I just want to, yeah, just want to be better. And I think that's one area that we are lacking in for sure. Mm. I mean, of course, one of the areas of diversity as well is um, gender diversity. And I always think of PR as a strange case because I think most of us think of PR as a field dominated by women and at the lower and mid tiers, it definitely is worldwide, pretty much. But as in a lot of industries, the higher up you go, the fewer women you see. So, you know, we have a smaller pool of men entering and yet by and large, they seem to be the ones who often make it to the top. What are your thoughts on that? Haven't thought about it, but thinking about it now, I guess because I'm not, because we're such a small agency, I don't really see, I don't really look at what our competitors are doing. I don't really, you know, I don't know all the acronyms and all the agency conglomerates are kind of another world to me. But, you know, just thinking about the ones that do come to mind, a lot of the big agencies are run by men. Why that is? I think part of it might be that, as you said before, are women putting themselves forward for those roles? Are they being considered for those roles by the boards that are making those appointments? I don't know. I also think that perhaps that, you know, this this interesting difference between the fact that, you know, maybe PR, I don't know what the numbers are, but let's just say there's 80% of people in PR are women and yet only 20% run the companies. Um, could it be that where the people making those hiring decisions, you know, when, you, when you're running a big conglomerate type of an agency, it's probably not your PR skills that you're being called upon for to run them. I'm not saying that makes it right, but I'm just, I guess, just trying to think through what some of the answers to that question might be. Mm. But it's not something that I, um, I don't feel a part of that world, which probably sounds strange, but I guess because I've never worked in an agency myself before starting one. I don't really know how they work. I don't really know what they're like to be inside one. Um, I don't really know what you would do at the top of a, an agency like that. So it's a little bit hard for me to comment. Hmm. Have you ever had a, a Me Too moment in your career? I have. I have. I um I was thinking, you know, obviously it probably makes everyone think about the moments that they've had when you see these terrible things um, that are happening to so many women around the world uh, have happened and are still happening. Um, yes, I have. One night you know, after a work dinner, a colleague um, didn't get out of the elevator at his floor and came to my floor and I was like, what do you, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> he said, oh, I thought I'd come with you to your room. <laughs> like uh no <laughs> and so he just went back down and went to his own room but I guess you know I guess that was a me too moment but I was like what planet are you on mm. um yeah it was in some like crazy tiny town in Tennessee where lots of weird things were happening to be honest and that was just one how did you handle it afterwards uh I don't think I, I don't honestly don't think I acknowledged, I, don't, I think I put it down to, you know, like we always do, he was drunk, maybe that's not what he meant, I don't want to cause a scene, you know, the whole thing. I would not be like that today, but it was a different time. Mm. What would you do differently now? I would sit down with him and talk to him about it the next day and explain to him how that made me feel and how I thought that was a, you know, a complete violation of my safe, you know, my right to a safe space at work and, um, and talk to him about it in the light of day. Mm. It occurs to me that you've, um, you've chosen a specific part of, of, PR, which is focused on tech and startups. And, you know, both of those fields, obviously they, they overlap a lot, but they, they both have received their own separate attention for, you know, structural and un unconscious biases, but also just in some cases, some downright conscious bias and horrible bro co culture. Um, is that something you've experienced? You know, I haven't. Um, th there's really only one rule that I have internally when thinking about who 
I want us to work with um, if they want to work with us, and that is are they good people? It's really basic, but are they good people? And they all are. So we don't have, I know that that exists. Um, I don't know that it's as bad in Australia as it, certainly as it's portrayed anyway, as it is in other parts of the world, like in the US, and you know, in Silicon Valley or whatever. Um, I don't really see that here. But I mean, I, so before this, when I had my corporate career, I worked in the resources sector and that is like 95% male. Mm. Um, so I guess I'm used to working in quite male dominated industries, but I guess what's similar between that sector and the tech sector is that by and large, the, the profession is engineering. So of one sort or another, and engineers are a particular type of person. Um, so I probably would say that I, um, I'm quite used to working with engineers, uh, just so it happens that a lot of them are male. Um, but we don't really, I certainly don't see that bro culture here, certainly not with any of our clients and really not with any, anyone in the broader community that where that we know of or work with. And mm. I, I don't know if that's not because it's not there or just because we don't entertain it. You know, it's not part of our world. Mm. What's um, the gender diversity split in your, I mean, I appreciate it's only a team of five uh, apart from you. What's all the, women. They're all women. <laughs> all women. That's what I'm saying. We've got like, our diversity is terrible. Um, <laughs> we're all women, all white, privileged women. Um, we did have a guy for a while, Sam, in case you ever listen to this. Um, and he worked with us on a contract basis and hopefully he will again in the future and he's amazing and he thought it was fantastic that he was our diversity hire. <laughs> he thought that that was, yeah, I think he thought that was pretty funny. Um, and it definitely having him when we had him in the team, like it just made, it just made a big difference, you know, sitting in our weekly WIP meeting, talking about our clients and ideas and what have you. And he just would bring this whole perspective that obviously none of us had. He's also a massive sports, um, lover. And so there's that element as well and has really interesting corporate background. So of course, everyone brings the totality of who they are, but I think just his maleness, I think definitely added something that we are we're missing and are still missing. Mm. There's not a lot of guys in PR. They're really... Not, not at the entry yeah. levels, not at the midpoint levels. There aren't. I'm, no. I'm wondering where they all come from at the top. It's, where it's... do they come from? Maybe they just come from running other big conglomerates. It's just a conglomerate club. Maybe, maybe. Uh, I feel that if we spend enough time on it, we will get to the bottom of where they actually all come from. Um, so um, is there anything in terms of, you know, apart from the, the diversity hire um, and your, your efforts to, to build a more diverse team, any other big failures you had along the way of launching your own company? Oh, yeah. Um. She says quietly, yes. <laughs> None that I want to talk about. Um, no, no, I've just, I just, I've just got, I really don't remember bad things. I really have to be reminded. And so it's like the worst thing can happen to me or someone can do something terrible to me. And I honestly, two years later, I've forgotten about it. So, I have the same exact quality. And I'm sure it's, friends. yeah, I'm sure it's a, definitely something that has uh, helped me be successful at times, but in other times it can be socially awkward when somebody remembers yeah. a grudge. I was holding something and I think, I don't remember what happened there. Remember you sued me three years ago? Why are you trying to talk to me at a party? Um, definitely. Yeah. I'm just trying to, I, honestly, I, I, there's been plenty. I just can't think of any. Um, okay. I would really have to rack my brain. Um, any favorite successes? I think um, I think this is going to be a sound weird, especially in this environment. But when we decided to get an office, that felt like a big success because it just felt like a physical manifestation of the brand that we'd built. Mm. Because we put a lot of love into that beautiful office that's just sitting there, empty right now. Um, so that felt like a successful moment because it also was a place that we could all be really proud of and we could bring our clients to and um, we could just be together and 
bring the brand to life in a 3D format. So that felt like a success. I think, um, you know, every time you win a client, that feels like a success. Every time you get a great result for a client, that feels like a big success. Um, But honestly, just the fact that I get up every day and love what I do is is the success that I'm most interested in and helping our team to have to feel that way as well. Hmm. So, you know, you'll know that I feel um, that there is a lot of attention and potentially too much attention in these conversations about motherhood and um, and building businesses. Not that it's not a completely relevant issue. Um, it absolutely is. But I think there's lots of issues about promoting women in business, um, not least the actual work that we're doing that has nothing to do with our gender. But I wanted to spend um, just a little bit of time talking about this with you because I know that um, you know you you launched the, your first business, I think, shortly after you had your first daughter. Um, you grew the business shortly after, or you were in a growth period when you had your second. And when I had my son and was really struggling with a topic that I feel like nobody talks about, which is how you work in a client-facing environment and continue to breastfeed, um, <laughs> I sent you an emotional panic text saying, I must be missing a trick. You have done this twice and I'm really <laughs> struggling only a couple of months in. So I'm wondering if you can, if you can talk a little bit about you know, how you manage that. Well, again, I've, I'm in a position of privilege because I, was, I could afford to have an amazing nanny and, and we still do. Um, there's absolutely no way I could do what I do without that support. And she was an absolute legend because, well, probably I would say maybe for, let's just say there were three feeds during a workday, I would try and get home for two of them, but she would bring it was Grace by then, our second daughter, she would bring Gracie to me and I would just feed in a meeting or wherever I was. So she'd bring her in the car, bring her up into the meeting room and I would just feed and then she would take her home, which feels <laughs> sounds so ridiculous now. Um, but I just, you know, that's what you had to do. Mm. So, and I just thought if I have a client that is not okay with that, then they are not my client. Mm. It's just that simple. Um, so, but none of them had a problem with it, but that's the attitude I had to take because I was like, I know this is a bit awkward for people and I get that it's a bit awkward for me too, but ultimately I, I still want to get my job done. I still want to be able to feed my baby. I don't want to have to go home three times a day, you know, and lose three hours of my day commuting. It just felt like a practical solution and it worked. So. Um, and I don't like, didn't like pumping, just hated it. Oh, it wasn't an option for me. Oh, it's really, so it's, awful. it's actually a literal hell. I, I wish people would be thing. more honest about that. I know it's, it, yeah, it's awful. So, and you know, feeding is easy, no bottles, no heating, no, you know, and so if you're lucky to be able to feed and your baby wants to do it, then why shouldn't you just feed wherever you are? Like, what's the problem? Mm. So I guess that's how I did it, but I fully appreciate that not everyone will be able to do that. Um, and then you, you're forced, I guess, to, to pump or find other ways that I was lucky. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important that we tell stories like this because I think a lot of women, I mean, I was certainly among them when you're particularly your first time mother, but actually you don't, it doesn't even have to just apply to motherhood, but you, you look at other people or other women who have been successful and you imagine that they have done it with the same resources that you have. And you might have less resources, which means that your life might look different. You might not be able, as you said, to have somebody bring, you know, your, your young baby to you to breastfeed. And so you, you know, might have to make the very rational choice to bottle feed or to, to find another way to, to pump or whatever it is, whatever success looks like to you in that moment with what you have. And so I think we sometimes have to be, um, just honest about the privilege that we do have when we have it that's enabled us to find the solutions that we have. Yeah. And kind to yourself when it doesn't work out. Cause I think, you know, there's nothing like mum guilt 
Um, there is nothing like mom <laughs> guilt. <laughs> yeah, to this day. <laughs> yes, yes. And, um, you know, I, I remember telling my um, obstetrician when I was, you know, struggling with the work and the breastfeeding that I, I felt it's obviously the, the positive breastfeeding um, movement has been you know, wonderful and, and, and it's obviously much healthier for your baby and you know, the, whole, the whole thing, I'm, you know, all of that said. And yet the pressure I felt was to continue breastfeeding. And I felt that, I mean, whether it's I internalized it or whether other people were actually pressuring me, it's kind of neither here nor there, right? That's, I felt the pressure that if I, if I somehow switched to bottle feeding, I was, hmm. you know, failing as we'll a mess mother. Yeah. You know, Um, and I remember I I was having, I thought I was having postpartum depression. I'm not sure if I told you this. I thought I was having postpartum depression. I kept having these, you know, breakdowns when I was traveling to a client or, you know, I had to go to France a lot at that time and I'd be on the Eurostar train and realizing I forgot my pump and it just, just, it was, it was an awful time. And I'm somebody that's normally very good in high stress environments and can find my way through chaos. No problem. Um, and yet I was just having these breakdowns constantly. And so I went to see a psychiatrist and he said, thinking I would need to go on medication or something. And he said, you know, tell me about these times that you're having these emotional breakdowns. And I'm starting to tell them. And I realized that every single one has to do with either I, you know, was late coming home for a feed or yeah. I got my pump or my pump didn't work or they sent me to a bathroom. Everyone wants to send you into a bathroom. Oh, I know. Oh, it's the worst. Being in toilets. There's so oh. many toilets that I've got fond memories of. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the worst. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and he's there, you know, rationally, calmly. And he said, well, I think the, um, the issue sounds like it might be the breastfeeding. Uh, and, and I, you know, I'm, yes, but I just feel like I want to exclusively breastfeed. And he said, you know, your son is uh, five and a half months old. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are some marginal benefits to continuing to exclusively breastfeed at this point. And I'm also sure that those are easily outweighed by having a stressed out mom. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was like in that moment, I all of a sudden gave myself permission to not be perfect in this way. It changed everything. Yeah. Well, good on you for, you know, like doing something and going to see someone and figuring it out. Because I think a lot of us, a lot of mothers just sort of try and stumble through the whole thing, putting everything down to hormones or just, you know, just getting used to it or the lack of sleep or that, you know, actually finding a way through and figuring out what it was and then rationally telling yourself that it's actually okay. I think the things that we do get hung up about if you do stop and actually rationally look at your th- your thoughts and feelings and behaviours, that's probably the answer like 99% of the time. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like these are your standards, your own internal standards that you're trying to live up to and whether they've, they're there because of societal pressure or whatever, ultimately you're the one who can change it. Mm. So in your field, um, whether it's, again, PR or, or working with startups or tech, what do you think, you know, what, what, what are some of the main issues that women face that have nothing to do with motherhood? I think a big one, and this is from a lot of female founders, women founders, I should say, that I um, know and talk to and mentor in some instances. Um, being, just being taken seriously, you know, mm-hmm. like for example, they'll talk about going, you know, going in to a meeting with a, a VC or well, I don't know, someone that, that wants, that they want to get money from an angel investor or something. And even if, so let's just say there's a co-founder pair, one's a, one's a woman, one's a man. They'll just ask the guy all the questions and just assume that the woman's in a supporting role. And I think that that is definitely something I've experienced in my career as well. Um, I, I still experience it now when I sit down at the table with a, you know, if I've got a client who's a male CEO and we sit down with, you know, to sit down to have a meeting with whether it be policymakers or what have you, they will often just kind of assume that I'm support staff. Mm. And I think that that's, I think that's what, what women are up against is just that um, being taken as seriously as a man in a lot of those settings. 
So how do you handle that when that happens to you? As they say, be better, not bitter. Just, you know, just, <laughs> just show them, um, you know, just have a voice and um, ask good questions and make your point in a nice way, of course, you know, like you will with anyone. But I get personal satisfaction when you can see someone, you know, from the beginning of a meeting when they're thinking that you're there to take the minutes to the end of the meeting where you're having a really good conversation and debate with them. And um, I don't know, there's a little bit of personal satisfaction in turning that around, but we shouldn't have to, you know, like I, I see it as a little bit of a game, but I shouldn't have to. Yeah, we shouldn't have to, but, um, but we do sometimes. So um, I want to be... I should say as well, sorry to cut you off, Sandra, but I should say as well, like a lot of the, in fact, all in, let's just, in those situations, and they do happen fairly often, because I work with such amazing people who are not intimidated by women at all and who don't need to be the smartest person in the room, even though most of them probably are, they also notice and pick up on it and they will be the ones who might say something like, well, why don't, I'd like to hear what Kate has to say about that. Or, you know, they will, in their own way, show that person or those people that I'm someone that they should be listening to. And so, and that, I think I get a lot of gratification from that. And I try to do that for other people myself in meetings as well, when I can see that, you know, someone's being left out or someone's not being taken seriously. Mm. I think that's so important. important. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. And just a beautiful example of what we mean by um, how women need to help other women and how men need to be part of this effort too, if we're ever going to achieve something like, you know, equality of opportunity and, um, and kind of getting rid of some of these structural biases. And it's not always what people think it is, you know, oftentimes it is just that really subtle, really unconscious, um, you know, she's not asked a question by the reporter or by the policymaker and just saying, Hey, yeah, you know, I'm Kate's got an idea about that too. And yeah. giving you a platform to, to exactly. demonstrate your value, you know, not, not creating value where there is none, but just making sure that you have a platform to demonstrate it. Exactly. And I think, you know, we can all do that for, you know, I'm sure everyone has the opportunity to do that in their work life for other people. And we all should. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to end on a few quick fire ish questions. So these don't have to be super quick fire. We can, we can um, tease them out if, if we need to, but I like to call these the tell it like it is questions. So questions that I feel like we just, we might discuss with friends or really trusted confidants, but um, aren't often discussed more in, in public uh, and would help a lot of women if we did. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. I uh, just can't imagine what you've got coming, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all, you know, well, let's, <laughs> what's one lesson you learned the hard way? Oh God. You know, I'm not that good at these quick responses. <laughs> we can edit oh, What's one lesson I've learned the hard way? <laughs> Listen to my husband about people. He's always right. Mm. I told you that. I know. Do you see any patterns across the women you admire? I think that they all are really willing to be open about their vulnerabilities because I think that's not something that comes naturally to me and therefore I look, I I admire that greatly in others. Um. And so I think that's probably something that is a consistent trait in women I admire. Mm. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you've since changed your mind about? <laughs> um, can it be silly? Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to, okay, so I used to think that keeping up with the Kardashians was tr- like a really like trashy TV show before I watched it. It's not. <laughs> I haven't watched it either. <laughs> you need to watch it. You need to watch it. It's um, it's actually a really beautiful show, and they're a really beautiful family. So there you go. <laughs> There's just something about that mother. You know, she's just um, she's just so fiercely, such a fierce supporter of her children, 
and they're so real with each other. So, um, this is but really is it really real? Happens. I thought all reality TV was kind of, I oh, mean, God. I don't watch reality Look, TV, but I thought it's all. I don't fair. think they're good actors, right? So I think that it's real. Um, I don't know. I think honestly, Cassandra, do me a favor. I'll give you like a, a series of three episodes. You, you can't just watch one from a season to watch and you need to watch them and then let me know what you think. Okay. I will do okay, that, but only for you. Only for you will I do that. <laughs> <laughs> the one where she gets robbed in Paris. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's not good, but it's a, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a good episode. Okay. I'll do that for you. Uh, what has feminism got wrong? I think it's labels, I think is quite problematic because I think that it's like so many other things that are so polarizing. It's almost become a dirty word, which is a real shame. So I think the label um, does a disservice to the movement. Mm. What are you still insecure about? It's really hard to answer, not because I'm not insecure about things, but because I'm probably insecure about lots of things. Um, I don't know. I am and I'm not. Like I, I'm, I'm very conscious of how I show up in the world, but I also take a lot on trust and faith and just am prepared to just try things. So I'm probably still insecure about, you know, the normal things. Am I smart enough? you know, should this person, client, brand really be trusting me with this issue? Do I really know enough? All those normal imposter syndrome things. Mm-hmm. So you and I are both almost 40, very, very mm-hmm. close to 40. If you could go back in time and tell your 30-year-old self anything, what do you think it would be? Oh, no, my 30-year-old self, I would say you're on the right track. My 20-year-old self. (laughs) (laughs) That would be a different conversation. Get on the right track. (laughs) Exactly. I think by 30, I'd, you know, I'd made enough errors of judgment and done enough silly things. um, And I'd kind of gotten it out of my system, I guess. So I think, you know, the last 10 years have been pretty amazing. I, I honestly don't think I would tell myself Maybe I would say just take a little bit more maternity leave. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, people too. tell you at the time, you know, you're never going to get that time back and you just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course it's true. You know, they are moments that you can only have once, like I guess all moments are, but those ones are particularly special. Uh, and my sister just had a baby, so seeing her go through it, you know, just makes me realize what a special, it doesn't feel special when you're in it, as you know, mm. or maybe it did for you, but it feels hard, but actually it's really special. So I wish I'd just maybe taken a little bit more time mm. for that. I have to say it didn't, I mean, at least for me and every, everybody's different, but um, it didn't feel that hard until I tried to start working again too. Yeah. Or at least that's how I remember it. You know, maybe, maybe that wasn't the actual reality, but in retrospect, I remember it being very, very, you know, special, but I started working quite, quite soon after Leo was born. And, um, and that was very hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to, it's really hard to have a newborn and work and be some semblance of a functioning person in society. Yeah. So if I asked you the same question 10 years from now, if I asked your 50 year old self, what you think your 40 year old self would most need to know, what do you think it would be? Stop trying to please people. Hmm. Finally, last question. What are you really fucking good at? <laughs> uh, um, oh, exploring, um, exploring ideas. I think I'm really good at exploring ideas and building on ideas and creating visions and ideas. Um, I, that's what I really enjoy. And I think I'm fairly good at it. Would you agree? We've, we've created many ourselves, Cassandra. Yes, I would really agree. And in fact, I would say that you aren't just fairly good at it. You are really fucking good at it. <laughs> so nice that you can validate, you know, my own belief about myself. Well, what are friends for? 
<laughs> what are you really fucking good at? I mean, you're really fucking good at lots of things, but what's your answer to that question? Oh, I think, I mean, I think it depends on the day. Um, today, I feel really fucking good at asking questions. <laughs> you are very good at this. Okay. So thank you so much for your time. Um, if people want to learn more about you or character and distinction, where can they find you? Well, we've got the worst URL in the world. Um, www.ofcharacter.com. Okay. Um, and on the socials? My Instagram, maybe. Or Twitter, better. Twitter. Kate Dinon. K-A-T-E-D-I-N-O-N. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Can't wait to oh talk to you again. That was so much fun. Love you, darling. I hope you enjoyed chatting with Kate as much as I did. If you want to hear more women tell it like it is, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You should also check out the show notes for more info on character and distinction and to sign up for our mailing list so you never miss an update. If you've got a story and you want to tell it like it is, I would love to hear from you. Do get in touch with me over at soapbox.work. Soapbox.work.